We continue our study, verse by verse really, in the first letter of the Apostle Peter. And I'd have you turn in your Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. We've come actually to verse 13, and uh, Lord willing, we hope to consider verses 13 through 16. In the first dozen verses of First Peter chapter 1, we have thrilled together at the wonders of God's sovereign grace, our great salvation. And it will be helpful to this morning's study if I point out this fact that so far in those first 12 verses, we have not found even one imperative sentence. That is, uh, there is no command for us to follow. There are only the acts of God on behalf of us sinners. Those acts of God, which Peter details, include the following. And I'm going to give them somewhat in order by way of a very quick review of where we've been. Peter says that we have received a divine election as an aspect of God's foreknowledge, his purpose to redeem us even before the foundation of the world. Then comes the act of the Holy Spirit of God in sanctifying us, setting us apart, the text said, for obedience to Christ. Then there's the application of the blood of Christ to atone for our sins, all of our sins. In that message, we came to realize that the blood of Jesus Christ never loses its power and continues to cleanse us day by day, and we need that. Then there came the promise of every grace and an abiding peace to follow us all the days of our lives. We learn from Peter that it was God causing us to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is the act of God establishing what Peter called an inheritance for us. Sounds good, doesn't it? And it's the greatest of all gifts. It's eternal life itself. And Peter says that inheritance is waiting for us. It is kept safe waiting for us in heaven. And then we studied God's power available to us to actively, literally second by second, moment by moment, protect his children so that they safely arrive at home. And Peter says, while... There may be any number, he uses the word distressing, trials and tribulations. In the meantime, those things too are not wasted on the children of God. As one hymn writer put it, it's one of my favorite lines in in any hymn. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold 
to refine. We might wonder, where does a hymn writer come up with such sublime language as that? Well, he got it from Peter. That's exactly what Peter is saying in verse 7, if you remember. That's the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation or the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's when, Peter says, we obtain as the outcome of our tried and true faith the salvation of our souls. Wow. Or to be a little more religious, amen, wouldn't you say? Not one command in all those 12 verses. Peter knows that if he's about to command anything from the people of God, it must be established first on the foundation of Calvary, of all that God has done in Christ to make our salvation possible. Again, no moral commands to be found in that unfolding of God's redemptive work. Now, another way of concluding what we see there is this, that salvation, all of it, from Alpha to Omega, from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. And so, to Him, and certainly not to us, be all the glory. Apostle Peter is really using a similar dynamic that Paul used, the Apostle Paul, even more expansively. The Magna Carta of all the New Testament epistles has to be Paul's epistle to the Romans. Did you know that in not just 12 verses, like Peter has done here, but in all of the first 11 chapters of Romans, in the original Greek, you will not find one imperative. You will not find one command. There's nothing for us to do. Paul is preoccupied with the wonders of a salvation that comes to us by God alone. And he spends 11 whole chapters in the book of Romans before he gets to chapter 12 and verse 1 when he finally says, Oh, I beseech you, family of God. I beseech you, brethren, that based upon those mercies, those first 11 chapters of detailing God's mercies that you present Yourself, a living sacrifice unto him. Now, nevertheless, the Bible is full of imperatives. And the first of the commands in Peter's epistle meets us here today at verse 13. What is very crucial, however, to understand is that every command... Every responsibility that God places upon his children always, 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 are you with me? It always comes after the work of Christ on the cross. Obedience follows. It is after the Holy Spirit of God has made us a new creation. And so, by that, has enabled us for the first time to obey from the heart those things that the Scripture require of us. Now, I've made such an emphatic point of this this far to say and to warn, never ever reverse the order where you end up with something less than the gospel. The order, again, is this. First, There is redemption accomplished by Christ on the cross 
And then an application of that redemption applied to the individual believer through the work of the Holy Spirit. Then what follows is a transformation of life. If any man, woman, boy or girl be in Christ, old things are passing away while evidence of the new life expresses itself in a growing obedience to Christ. True Christian obedience is a therefore obedience, if I could put it that way. You see there in our study today, what's the first word in verse 13? You tell me. Right. Those of you with a King James Version have said wherefore. Those of you with updated other English translations have said therefore. They mean the same thing. This is what I call a therefore obedience. The call to be disciples, followers of Christ and obedient children is always preceded by the new birth described in verses 1 through 12. Or another way I could say this is this. The only obedience that pleases God is that which comes as a result of the new birth that He brings. Anything prior to the regenerating, life-giving work of the Holy Spirit could only be called works of righteousness which we have done. Does that phrase sound familiar at all? It's the Apostle Paul who says that works of righteousness which we have done can never save, could never redeem. It's all filthy rag business, if you remember. Now, self-righteousness may express itself in what men may call good deeds, good works, hopefully a, a high morality, But we must say and say it clearly and say it often. Moralism, the religion of vast numbers of people, moralism saves no one. And I want to make that distinction today. Moralism in a pluralistic society is a good thing. I'm glad that I live on a street where... I would say that most of my neighbors that I know are not believers in Christ are at least moral people. I'm glad to have moral folks living around me there on Edwards Street. Moralism in a pluralistic society is a good thing. Now listen, until it becomes the enemy of the gospel. Have you not found it to be so? You begin to share the gospel, right, with someone, which is all about the work of Christ. And you never seem to get very far, in most cases, before someone begins to talk about their works. The gospel is about Christ's works. People confuse the gospel, fatally so, with moralism. Let's now read uh, verses 13 through 16. And you will note that these words, which include clear commands, could never be addressed 
to the unregenerate, those still outside of Christ. It can only be what I call, therefore, obedience, that which follows genuine salvation. So follow along with me. Therefore, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, spiritual ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also, get this folks, in all your behavior. Because it is written, and this is God speaking, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, beloved, can you imagine if this were the only passage of Scripture available to someone looking for salvation, who doesn't possess it already as a gift of God's mercy, as it's said in verses 1 through 12. I wonder what they might conclude. Suppose some unregenerate person were to just say, okay, I'll read the Bible. And so they flip open the Bible and they put a finger down. And it just so happens it lands uh, on 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13, and they start to read. I'd like you to keep that sanctified imagination going, uh, and, and let's get in the shoes of such a person outside of Christ. They read it. This is Bible. They're seeking salvation. The person says to themselves, number one, if I'm going to get saved, I had better set my mind for action, it says. I've got to get it into my head, I guess, what God requires of me. Because Peter does say, uh, get a ready mind, prepare your minds. Number two, he reads on, he says, hmm, keep sober in spirit. And the unsaved man says, well, I guess I better lay off the sauce. And, and clean up my act. Surely God wants me to turn over a new leaf. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know what I mean by the sauce, you can see me after church and I'll do my best to explain it. He reads on in the text. He says, it says, and it does say, that I had better hope for the grace to come when Jesus comes. And so he concludes... Well, I hope he will accept all of my good efforts. Isn't it the common picture that the moralist has? That, that picture of the scales, like the scales of justice, you know. And here on the one side, well, there's the few missteps I've taken in life. There's the white lie I told. And, and there's these times that maybe I lost my temper and I said things I shouldn't have. But Lord, over here on this side of the scale, why, piled high are all my lifelong efforts at doing good. And so he says, if I'm going to get saved in the end, I'm going to have to deal with my lust problems. That is the word that is used in our text. And by now he begins to think, man, this salvation business is tough until he comes to the last of the verses which we've read there, which is uh, verse 16. He reads that and there's a groan or maybe he says, whoa, 
it says, I've got to get holy like God himself. Now, perhaps I've exaggerated a bit, but can you see why these commands, if viewed as a cause for salvation by someone in spiritual ignorance, could actually make hell a lot more attractive, at least in this life, than the hope of heaven. I were to read that that way, it's just too hard. Can't be holy like God is holy. In fact, folks, I would argue that Peter himself may have had such an experience, an early experience in his pre-conversion days. He was there on a hillside on the shores of Galilee when Jesus preached his first public sermon. We've come to know it as the Sermon on the Mount. I wonder what this fisherman's thoughts might have been when he heard Jesus say this. Matthew 5.20. Jesus says, I say unto you, and I can see Peter you know, sitting up, that unless your righteousness surpasses, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know the little uh, ditty? Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down, or who was it? Fell for Jill? I don't know which one fell down. One of them broke their crown. Jill came following after. I can see Peter sitting on the mountainside hearing Jesus say to a fisherman, a Jew nonetheless, but a fisherman, unless you can get a righteousness going in your favor that exceeds that of the professional full-time jot and tittle law keeper Pharisees, you'll never make it. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Well, so much for moralism. So much for a meticulous devotion to religious religion. Jesus says you need a righteousness that exceeds the most righteous man or woman you've ever met, Peter. Now, of course, we know that Jesus was talking about his own seamless righteousness. Thankfully, and that's why we call the gospel good news, a righteousness that a simple fisherman, by faith, would have imputed to him. The only righteousness that Peter or anyone else could actually trust to be far exceeding the religious moralism of those who were experts in the law. I'm so wanting this morning, there is a burden of the word of the Lord that's been resting on me all week. And I only dumped a little of it on the first crowd. Uh, the burden is not released until I make a few more things clear. I labor on for a while and I ask you to stay with me here. Earlier, I mentioned the mistaken view of so many who think that their own performance, their own behavior could ever be a cause for their salvation. An idea that God will accept sinners on the ground of an improved or better performance. 
You've heard the common phrase, uh, perhaps, uh, cause and effect. Have you heard that? Cause and effect. I want you to start to get that into your mind. The meaning of that, a cause creating an effect, uh, may prove, I hope, to be very helpful to someone here this morning, or perhaps all of us. Let's talk about it a little bit. God is the cause of our salvation. That's verses 1 through 12. That's been established, I trust by now, that the righteousness of Christ, not our own, is the cause, the ground of our acceptance before God. So then, where does our obedience come in? Now, I've already suggested twice, it is a therefore obedience. Our practical Everyday, imperfect obedience, not the cause of our salvation, but an effect of our salvation. God is always the cause. He is the first cause of all our obedience. Our obedience, such as it is, is the effect or the fruit, if you will, of our salvation of which God is the cause. Someone just gave me great comfort. They were shaking their head like they were getting this. Now, when about 50 more of you begin to do that, I'll move on. In an earlier message in this series, I made the point that a Christian's, a true Christian's good works are never meritorious works, as though they earn the favor of God. All our works are evidential works. When James says, you say you have faith, show me your faith by your works, that's all he's saying is if you've got a genuine faith, if that's been given to you as the cause from God, and it's real, that faith will work. That faith will bear fruit. There will be evidence, but never the cause. God is the cause. Our obedience is the effect, the spiritual fruit of our salvation. I hope I haven't lost anyone here. Let me give an earthy illustration. My daughter, Sarah, Uh, And I wish you could all know her. She's just terrific. Um, Right now in her life, she's preparing in university uh, with great passion. She's preparing herself to be a school teacher. And I can tell you now she'll be one of the best. And she's already been challenged to find by assignment creative ways to get kids thinking and learning. Sooner or later, she will most likely have the challenge of teaching kids this universal concept that we're dealing with this morning, cause and effect. If you had to teach that to someone and they were all middle schoolers, I wonder what you'd come up with. I'm interested to see what, what Sarah will come up with. It is such an important principle for rational thinking. And I want us to be rationally thinking about our salvation and the place of our obedience. It's what Peter's dealing with in our lesson today and in the weeks to come. Now, here is one teacher's approach in the classroom. She made a simple chart 
of examples that help the student distinguish between cause and effect. On one side of the chart, she listed a cause, and directly across on the other side, she listed an obvious effect. Are you with me? Well, maybe this will help. On the one side under cause, the teacher listed this. The boy kicked the ball. Effect, the ball rolled. Cause, effect. Second one she gave as an example. Cause, the girl teased the dog. Effect, the dog growled. Right? Third example she gave. Sally studied hard for a test. That's her cause. The effect, Sally earned an A on her test. All right, one more. Joe became really tired. Cause, Joe fell asleep in church. Cause and effect. Now, I made my own chart of cause and effect based on 1 Peter 1. I want you to follow this with me. Cause. This is right out of the text. God's great mercy caused me to be born again. That's verse 3. God is the cause. What was the effect of that? The therefore effect. That key word, the therefore, is telling us these are the effects of what we find in the first 12 verses. God's great mercy caused me to be born again. The effect, my mind is now set on heavenly things. Verse 13. You see, it is never that I decided all by myself to make up my mind to start thinking about eternity. And I became the cause of coming to Christ. Oh, no, no, no. We never reverse that. Here's some more. Cause. I've been set apart, Peter says, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, that's the cause. What is the effect? I take the matter now of obedience to Christ quite soberly. There's that word again. Verse 13. A few more. Cause. I've been given a living hope in a living Savior, and I am being protected by the power of God until Jesus comes. Verse 5, the cause, the effect, my hope is fixed on Christ, and His grace will cover me when He appears in judgment. Hey, this, this cause and effect stuff's a blessing, isn't it? Cause, I've received the Holy Spirit. In the first 12 verses there, I believe that uh, uh, verse 2, I received that Holy Spirit for the purpose, it says, of obeying Jesus. That's why the Spirit was given to me and why the Spirit worked in me. What is then the effect of that? As his redeemed child, <clears throat> I'm moving away from old lust to an obedience rooted in love for Christ. Don't ever get these things reversed. You'll end up with something other than the gospel. You'll become a legalist. You'll be like a Pharisee. And you know what? You need a righteousness which is greater than that. You need God to do something. One more. Along this vein, at least. 
Because the God who saved me is holy. We sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. The God who did all this is holy. What is the effect? I'm pursuing the same kind of holiness that Jesus himself displayed while on earth. I want to be more like Jesus. You could never, I could never be the cause of that kind of desire. There has to be a cause. He is holy in order for me to have the effect of wanting to be holy even as he is holy. Not as holy as he is, but like he is. Now, beloved, keep this matter of cause and effect in mind and you'll be far less likely to confuse your efforts with what is actually supposed to be the fruit of the Spirit. Another teacher wanting her students to grasp the importance of cause and effect simply drew a big apple tree on the blackboard in front of the classroom. At the bottom, she showed the ground, and underneath the ground, a big, life-giving root system. She put the word on the board. She labeled everything below the ground as cause. And you guessed it, the beautiful limbs flowing with bright green leaves, laden with red, delicious apples. She labeled it effect. Are you getting the picture? The master teacher of all teachers for all time is Jesus. He put it this way. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me, for without me you can do how much? You can do nothing. It takes the cause. It takes a God who gives life. God in Jesus Christ who is the vine. And we abide in Him and His words Life-giving nutrient to our soul gives strength. Jesus says, you abide like that. You, the effect, will bear fruit, much fruit, and it will be fruit that remains. By that he means this is fruit that will be tested in the day of judgment. And it will make it through judgment. A lot of the stuff I did, or you might have done, even with good intention, Were it not the effect of abiding in Christ is all that wood, hay, and stubble stuff that's going to burn up in a purifying fire, the judgment of believers, so that we enter into glory with nothing left but to enjoy those things which He, the cause, brought to pass in our lives. We learn to say, if we understand this gospel aright, If you see something really good in me, all you're looking at is the effect. God alone is the cause. So who gets the praise? Who gets the glory? God alone. Another classic text for 
cause and effect has to be the way Paul put it in Philippians 1, 6 and Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I'm going to string those three verses together, but listen to them. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he, who is he, by the way, the cause, right? Are you with me? He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Keep right on working until the day of Jesus Christ. The cause is God. So then, Paul says there, my beloved, effect, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the effect. For it is God, who is the, the, let me, let me hear it like you say amen sometimes. God, who is the cause, alright, Paul would say, is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that tells me if there's anything I ever do any day of the week that actually pleases God, the cause was his willing and working in me to produce the effect, my obedience. To God be the glory. You see, there's not only nothing in which we sinners can boast prior to salvation. Heaven forbid we become braggarts after we've been saved. It's all his work and he is the cause. We've been talking about classrooms and teachers and Children, Here's a little children's song. I think it was a sweet way to express this truth I came across this week. The words are, are, are like this. It's entitled Little by Little. I can picture a little one in Sunday school singing it. He's changing me, my precious Jesus. I'm not the same person I used to be. Sometimes it's slow going, but there's a knowing that one day perfect I will be. Little by little, every day, little by little, every way, my Jesus is changing me. Since I've made a turn about faith, I've been walking in his grace. My Jesus is changing me. He is the cause of every good in me. I suppose perhaps in a more adult way, you can identify with Another way of saying the same thing about God's proactive, ongoing, powerful grace in our lives. I have adopted these words years ago to express in brief form my own testimony. <clears throat> it goes this way. Oh, I'm not the man that I ought to be. No, I'm not even the man that I want to be. But I thank God... I'm not the man that I used to be, and I praise him now that I'm not the man I'm going to be. It's God's work. He's the cause. And I ask, is he having an effect on you this day? I pray that that would be the case.